Well, peace be with you. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Jude, Jude, again, that's the second to last book of the Bible. It's a short one, but it's right before the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, so it's easy enough to find. It's just a single chapter, and uh, we are in our sixth week. This is our sixth week, uh, just slowly walking through Jude, and this is our last uh, Sunday in the, the body of the letter. And uh, next Sunday, Pastor Dan will, will take us through um, in the beginning of the conclusion. We'll spend two Sundays looking at the conclusion of Jude. Uh, and then after we conclude Jude, we'll get back into the gospel according to Mark, uh, which we began earlier this year and, and will continue on until late next year. Um, so, but we're, we'll be in Jude today. Um, if you want to turn to Jude, by the way, I wanted to make mention of this to you. Uh, right after the service, uh, we'll be conducting a, a Veritas in 10, which is just 10 minutes with the pastors um, after church. Um, and we'll be down in the dining room, and we'll just kind of explain a little bit about our church and be available for questions. Uh, if you have any questions, if, uh, if, you're, if this is your first time here, if you're uh, a guest with us who's been with us for a little bit now, you just want to learn more and take your next step to getting plugged into to, uh, God's family here. We'd be glad to have you at Veritas and 10, downstairs in the dining room, right after this service. Um, but yes, we'll be in Jude, uh, particularly verses 14 to 16 this morning. Uh, once you get there, you can go ahead and stand uh, and join me in, in respect and honor of God's word, for the reading of God's word. And we'll be again looking at Jude 14 through 16. Jude 14 through 16. And Jude writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their Deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We praise you because it is clear and sufficient and inerrant and authoritative. And we're thankful that we don't have to wonder about who you are or what you expect of us or how we might be saved or what's coming at the end of the age. We can know because you have given us the most sure and certain word concerning these things. We pray that you would humble our hearts before you to receive the truths about these things contained in Jude's word. And we pray, Father, that as we explore them, that these meager elements that I bring here, that you would be faithful to miraculously multiply them so that your people 
are nourished and fed this morning. May your people hear a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. May they not hear my voice merely, but they, may they hear the voice of Jesus coming forth from your word off of these pages into their ears and their hearts so that the lost are saved and the saints sanctified for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. It was in late 2008 that I learned this important lesson that um, before you get in the car, you should find out where it's headed. I was in southwestern Brazil in the state of Piranha, and I was there with a, a team, and we were helping to... Uh, we were helping a, a friend there who ran a small family farm. And they were trying to extend running water from their house into other parts of the farm. It just makes farming more convenient when you have running water. And they needed to raise money for the plumbing. And so the family decided to r throw a, a rodeo fundraiser, which is, would be fairly, a, a little more understandable in, in this particular part of Brazil than it would be, say, uh, in southern Ohio. Uh, but they, they decided to throw a rodeo fundraiser for their village. And we helped put on the event, and uh, it included a, a dinner and entertainment and face painting and, and all sorts of other things, fun stuff. And while we were setting up for the event, some of the locals who were also helping came up to talk with me, and um, they spoke Portuguese and no English, and I spoke English and no Portuguese. And so... I couldn't really understand what they were saying, but from what I could put together, they wanted me to get in the bed of their truck and go run an errand with them. And so I got in the bed of the truck, and, uh, which is really more like an El Camino. You know, the trucks there in, in southern Brazil, they're a lot more like an El Camino than what we would, you know, typically picture as a truck here in the States. And it was, I mean, it was a beautiful drive. We were driving through the Brazilian countryside. Uh, there were beautiful rolling hills of of deep green crops and red dirt that you could just see for miles and miles. It, it was a delight to feel that Brazilian breeze uh, in my face and, and just see this beautiful sight as far as the eyes could see. And then eventually a smell hit me. We were approaching a pig farm. Um, and if you know the smell, you know it's strong. And this is just where we happen to stop, at this pig farm. Uh, and so we, we get out and we go into this this smelly barn sort of thing, and, and I see the most gigantic pigs I have ever seen in my life. They were pigs the size of cows, only less muscular, uh, and, and they were enormous. Honestly, I was shocked when they got one to stand up and slowly kind of walk up this ramp and onto a ledge where we could kind of shove it off into the back of this El Camino, which looked like it was struggling under the weight of this massive pig. Uh, but they got it up, and, and, and we got it into the bed of the truck. And then the gentleman I was with, they told me to sit on top of this pig. And so I'm, I'm sitting on top of this pig as we're driving through that delightful Brazilian countryside. And um, we were off driving again. Dr you know, drops of the pig's drool were flying up into my eyes and face as we were driving from the wind. It was, uh, it was quite the experience. Now, I should have put two and two together. I just thought they were bringing this pig to like for kids to pet it or something at the rodeo. That is until we arrived at this unmarked building in the middle of nowhere in Brazil. It's a cinder block building. And we get out 
And uh, the guys I'm with, we, we start trying to get the pig into the building. And, and so we go in, and it's like something out of a horror movie. I mean, it is, it is frightening. The interior decorator of this place, decor, it's, everything was white tile. And there were animal body parts lying all over the place and just puddles of blood all over the floor, the, the, the white tile floor. This pig was dinner. And out comes this deranged butcher carrying a a, a ball peen sledgehammer, which he then used to slay this poor pig. And I'm going to save you the, the gory, horrendous details, but I'll just say this. If I could ever unsee one thing in my life, it might be the death of this poor squealing pig via blow after blow with, to the head with this ball peen sledgehammer. It was horrendous. And so I learned this lesson, before you get in the car, find out where it's headed. Find out where it's headed. And Jude here, in verses 14 to 16, is helping us by showing us where these ungodly teachers we've been learning about are headed. He's warning his hearers to not follow them because the, their direction and destination is one you most certainly don't want to head in. We've been looking at Jude for several weeks here now, and we've been continually reminded of, of Jude's purpose in this book. He's exhorting God's people in churches to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to protect and preserve the gospel so that we might have a gospel to proclaim to the nations and pass on to the coming generations. And the occasion which gave rise to this purpose in Jude's letter is that there were false teachers and ungodly leaders who were creeping into the church and they were marked by ungodly character and they were teaching heretical doctrines. And, and we've seen through Jude's letter here uh, some aspects of their false teaching and we've seen some markers or characteristics by, we, by which we might recognize false teachers. But here Jude wants us to see that we don't want to follow these false teachers and ungodly leaders because if we get in the car with them, so to speak, their destination will be our own and their destination is one of judgment and condemnation on the last day where actually they're not even going to witness the pig being brought into slaughter. They'll be the pig themselves. They are headed into a most dire condemnation and judgment. And that's the sort of big idea that we find here. The ungodly are headed for the most dire judgment. The ungodly are headed for the most, un, the most dire judgment. And we'll unpack this by looking at the doom of the ungodly, where we're going to consider uh, and explain what Jude is teaching here. But then not only that, we also, we also know that the doctrines of judgment and hell are doctrines of difficulty for some. And so we want to address some of the questions in this next point as we look at the difficulties for some. And of course, we want this message to be practical and, 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 and help you understand what you must do in light of God's word here. And so we'll close by looking at the demands upon all. So first, the doom of the ungodly. And our passage here begins with Jude making reference to Enoch, who, uh, counting Adam, is the seventh uh, from Adam. And he's not to be confused with the son of Cain, who would be third from Adam. Uh, Cain's son was also named Enoch, but this Enoch was the son of Jared. Jared was the sixth from Adam, counting Adam. 
So Enoch, the one Jude is referring to, is the seventh from Adam, who was a godly man and who actually did not taste death but was uh, carried up to, to heaven, as we see in the book of Genesis. And now if you go back to the Old Testament to try to find this prophecy from Enoch here, you're not going to find it, which is a kind of a theme that you might have been picking up on here in Jude's letter. Uh, this is not from Scripture. It's not from a book of the Bible. This prophecy is from 1 Enoch 1.9. 1 Enoch 1.9, which is a, a pseudepigraphal book uh, that was read widely among the Jews in Jude's day. And it's not found within the canon of Scripture. Uh, in, in fact, um, no one in any Christian tradition or Judaic tradition counts 1 Enoch as part of its canon. Uh, but as we mentioned this last week, the Bible will sometimes quote non-biblical sources in order to highlight or illustrate or prove a point to its hearers. And that's what Jude is doing here. He's quoting a non-biblical source, and probably rather wisely too, since these false teachers here likely did not honor the Old Testament scriptures as binding and authoritative. Uh, perhaps along with that, they very well might have considered First Enoch as part of their uh, authoritative writings. That's, that's definitely possible. And so Jude here says, you know, not just the scriptures condemn these false teachers, but look, even non-biblical books that they, they, they might even hold a, as authoritative, even non-biblical books condemn these false teachers like First Enoch does here as well. And the quote from First Enoch does indeed refer to condemnation and judgment, uh, Jude provides what seems to be his own translation of the quote from 1 Enoch 1.9. And this is what he says. He says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. Jude, channeling Enoch, says, Jesus Christ is going to return. And, and notice, he, he doesn't actually say that Jesus Christ is going to return. He says, the Lord comes. It's in the aorist tense, the tense we've talked about before, that underlines the certainty of Christ's coming. This is a done deal. It's a sure thing. And he says that in Christ's most certain coming, he will be accompanied by 10,000s, the word is literally myriad, countless myriad holy ones. Now, the holy ones here in Jude 14 are, are sometimes thought to be us. The saints, which we do know that the saints will be returning with the Lord Jesus in the final judgment. We find that in Colossians 3, 4. But this seems to be a more explicit reference to the angels returning to Jesus, as we see Jesus discuss in Mark 8, 38. And this is confirmed by a very similar reference uh, to the Lord being surrounded by the presence of myriad angels. You can find that in Deuteronomy 33, 2. And it makes sense, you can see, that Jude would be referring to angels returning with Christ at the final judgment uh, of these false teachers because, as we've already seen, these false teachers are guilty of speaking blasphemously about angels and their role in giving the law. And now when Jesus comes with his holy angels, he says that he will execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly. Okay, now obviously... When whoever wrote First Enoch here wrote it, they weren't referring specifically to these false teachers here in Jude's letter. Notice the, the sort of universal language of the quote. It's judgment on all and conviction of all the ungodly. And yet, 
Jude is saying that these ungodly leaders ought to be included in this group designated as ungodly and subject to God's judgment, despite the fact they are within the church and perhaps even leaders within it. The destiny, Jude says, that awaits the ungodly awaits these false teachers as well because they are ungodly. On the last day, they will be judged and convicted along with all of the other ungodly people in the world throughout history. And be mindful here, uh, this word convict, uh, this word is used in a way that uh, we often don't usually use it in in church settings and and kind of spiritual language. Often when we use the word convict in the church, we're talking about a sort of spiritual experience of being made aware of and sorry for our sins and wrongdoing. But here, when Jude says to convict, he's going to convict, he means to say that these ungodly will be formally judged and found guilty. Uh, He's not talking about a, a, a spiritual experience. He's talking about a judicial verdict. On the last day, when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, he will find all the ungodly guilty, and he will sentence them to eternal punishment in a lake of fire. And this is what we see Jesus say in Revelation 21.8. He says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus refers to this very place. In uh, Mark 9, 48, when he says there, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place of suffering and torment forever and ever. And this is the sentence, Jude says, that awaits all who do not repent and trust in the Lord Jesus, including these false teachers. And there are two crimes, Jude says, that Jesus will convict the ungodly of first, He's he's going to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way. He's going to convict them, Jude says, for their deeds of ungodliness which are done in such an ungodly way. These These are actions of blatant rebellion against the commands of God. And we've seen already that these false teachers rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ, particularly when it came to what the, Lord, what the Lord Jesus says about sexual or sexuality and sexual immorality. They completely reject what Jesus says about the subject, and they live in blatant rebellion against his design and commands. And this is ungodly, because in so doing, they are seeking to suppress the truth about God and live in a way that they actually know to be wrong. Uh, this is how Paul defines ungodliness. You know, Jude keeps referring to to the ungodly here and ungodly deeds and ungodliness and all this. And and if you look at Romans 1, 18 through 32, you see a very wonderful definition of, of ungodliness. Ungodliness is suppressing the truth about God and seeking to exalt yourself to the place of God in effort to determine what is right for yourself. And in so doing, you become unlike God and you live without God in the world. That's what it means to be ungodly. But Jude says he's going to convict the ungodly. He's going to judge the ungodly and sentence them to eternal condemnation. But he says he's not just going to convict the ungodly of their ungodly deeds done in an ungodly way. The second thing he says, but also 
of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Not just deeds, but words here. Harsh words spoken against Christ himself. As you move into verse 16, you actually see the descriptions of some of these words. A Jude calls the ungodly, calls them grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Notice what characterizes their speech. He says that they're grumblers. They're not thankful and content. They're grumblers. What are grumblers? Grumblers are those who murmur, who just murmur and complain about life and circumstances and inconveniences. The, the common illustration of this is, is that of Israel in the wilderness, of which the same word is used here to, de, to describe uh, these false teachers. The same word is used in, in the Old Testament to describe uh, the, the grumbling Israelites. In Exodus 14, they grumbled about leaving Egypt. In Exodus 15, they grumbled about a lack of water. In Exodus 16, they grumbled about a lack of food. In Exodus 17, they grumbled about their leaders. In Numbers 11, they grumbled about the type of food they have. In Numbers 14, they grumbled about the inhabitants of the land. They grumbled. And all of this grumbling seemed to be directed at their, their circumstances and their lot in life. And yet, the Lord says, their grumbling is actually against me. It was an offense to God when they grumbled because he was the one who had been kind enough to provide for and rescue them in his providential care. And so all of their grumbling is ultimately against him, regardless of whether or not it was intentionally directed toward him. Have you ever thought about that? As we complain and grumble, I was convicted of this this last week, as I, I struggle with grumbling, just so you know. It's, it's like a besetting sin for me. As I was reading this passage, I was convicted that my complaining, my grumbling, I often think of it as being directed toward my unwanted or inconvenient circumstances, and yet, when I'm complaining and grumbling, I'm in essence saying to God, you're getting it wrong. Your providential care for me could be improved. Friends, that is blasphemous. That is blasphemous. And you can see how that would often lead into other sins listed here as well. Now, grumblers complain about their lot in life to the point where they are so shaped and formed by their grumbling that they're made into malcontent people. And malcontent people think that they can run their life better than God can. They shake their fist at God and they say, if you aren't going to run my life the way that I want, I'll take things into my own hands. And so they then follow their own sinful desires and commit all kinds of ungodly deeds and ungodly ways. But then it's not just that, Jude says. Their ungodly speech is also that of being loud-mouthed boasters. Which gives us an image of being a kind of, kind of puffed up with conceit, like a blowfish, puffing yourself up with bragging and, and trying to make yourself look more important and more authoritative and more trustworthy in the sight of others. What's more, they show favoritism to gain advantage. They, they show uh, favor to certain people in the congregation, probably to satisfy their greed, as we discussed last week. These are the habits and characteristics of ungodly people. This, amongst other reasons, is why Jesus is going to come and judge and convict them and cast them into the lake of fire forever and ever 
on the last day. Now, here I, I want to pause and I want to give consideration to the difficulties for some. Okay, the doctrines of judgment and hell can be difficult for some to, to swallow, especially in a time and place in which you know, things like tolerance and acceptance are professed to be some of the chiefest virtues and acts of righteousness that, that we can commit. In that kind of culture, doctrines of hell and judgment can sometimes seem distasteful, if not repulsive, to people. And because of this, you know, we, the, the, the doctrines of hell and judgment can often be a, a kind of focal point in deconstruction narratives. So we've been talking a little bit here and there throughout the series about the, the, the subject of deconstruction and how it's increasingly a prevalent issue in the church today. And uh, several very public deconstruction narratives uh, have even named the doctrines of judgment and hell as part of the reason that they are deconstructing and perhaps leaving the faith, like that of Marty Sampson. Marty Sampson was a, a, a songwriter for Hillsong and a worship pastor there. Um, and he mentioned when he publicly announced that he was uh, deconstructing and deconverting and leaving the faith, he mentioned as part of his reason for deconstructing that Scripture's teaching on judgment and hell are not fair and contradict our understanding of God as love. And in his complaints about these teachings... He said explicitly, no one addresses these things. No one is talking about these things. Why isn't anyone talking about this? Now, that's not exactly true. I mean, Christians have been talking about the doctrines of hell and judgment and how they relate to God's love for the last 2,000 years. There's lots of literature on this point. And yet, there very well might be some churches who don't talk about it. We don't want to be guilty of that. We want to address the subject. We want to be clear on it. We need to address these kinds of questions because these are questions that people in our cultural moment are asking. And so we need to address them. And so how could Scripture's teaching on judgment and hell, how could that be considered fair? You know, how, how People are cast into the lake of fire forever and ever for eternal conscious torment. Why? Because they grumbled and complained? Because they were malcontent? Because they acted out on their own desires and urges? What if they didn't know any better? Or, 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 or even if they did, an eternity in hell, doesn't that seem like a bit of an excessive punishment? And, and, and what this question fails to take into account is that the punishment of eternity in hell is not primarily communicating something about the severity of sin itself. It's primarily communicating something about the God who has been sinned against. Uh, J.D. Greer once rightly said concerning this issue, he said, we, w what we often fail to comprehend is that our sin was against an infinite God and justice required an infinite punishment. Hell is a very clear statement to us about the greatness and majesty of God. Some might think they're doing God a favor by lessening hell, but what they're doing is diminishing the greatness of God. We think hell is severe because we don't think that trampling on the glory of God is that big of a deal. We think the big deal of the universe is us. He is the big deal of the universe. And everything works to his glory. Hell then itself is a permanent monument to the greatness of his name. You see, eternal and infinite punishment is required. Not because our sin is by nature eternal and infinite but because it is directly against the God who is infinite and eternal. All our sin 
is lawlessness and disobedience and rebellion against him. The one who created us and designed us and who therefore deserves our eternal adoration and devotion. And to give him anything other than our eternal adoration and devotion is treason. Treason to the highest order and therefore deserves to be punished. It is fair. It is fair. And furthermore, part of what we need to understand about these kinds of questions, friends, is that as a um, rapper Shai Lin once said, God is not subject to fallen human notions of fairness. Okay, friends, in asking these kinds of questions, we need to be very careful that we are not presuming, we need to be very careful that we are not presuming as fallen and sinful humanity to be wiser or more just than God himself is. In fact, one of, the, one of the interesting things about this word translated as judgment here in Jude is that it could also be translated as the administration of what is just, the administration of what is righteous. The word itself infers that the judgment rendered is right. And who would be a better judge of that than the God, the infinitely wise and righteous God? Should we think ever should we ever think that we would be better at determining what is right or more fair than God is himself? We should never think such a blasphemous thought. We should never think that. But then one might ask, not just is it fair. Okay, maybe we could acquiesce to that. But what about Scripture's teaching concerning the love of God? What about Scripture says that God is love? He is love. How could a God who is love send billions of people to eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. That seems like a contradiction. How do you harmonize these two things? And part of what we need to understand in response to that question is that such a conundrum exists because it conflates love with unconditional acceptance. Or at least it makes unconditional acceptance an essential characteristic of love. But that's simply a, a, a faulty view of love. For example... According to that definition of love, if a proved and convicted sex offender comes to me and says, I need a place to stay, can I stay in your house for a few weeks? According to that definition of love, of, of unconditional acceptance, I should say yes. Because part of being loving is unconditionally accepting anyone. Well, would that really be the loving thing to do? Would that be the loving thing to do? Would that be loving, for example, to my wife or my children, to my household? It would not be loving, because love requires that I be discerning and do justice, particularly in relation to them. Well, similarly, God's love requires that he make judgments and do justice for his people and for the glory of his name. The way we, should, the way we feel about protecting our households from a, a, a rapist or a child molester is a small picture of the way God feels about sin and ungodliness and his holiness. He must reject it, and he must cast it out of his favorable presence forever and ever. He must punish it with infinite punishment in order to honor his promises to his people and in order to honor the infinite glory and majesty and holiness of his very own name. So yes, God, a God who is love can judge and condemn the ungodly into hell forever and ever. In fact, he must, because to be love, he must be just, and to be just, he must punish sin rightly. And so he will one day punish sin rightly. The most dire punishment, Jude says, 
awaits the ungodly. The most dire judgment and condemnation and doom awaits the ungodly. Whether they live in Enoch's day or Jude's day or ours. Which brings us lastly to the, the demands upon all. The doctrines of judgment and hell make demands upon our lives and they call us to godly response. And the first demand that, that we'll look at is, is, is that we ought, to, we ought to beware the gradual road to hell here. We ought to beware the gradual road to hell. And you can see this kind of progression, as we mentioned earlier. And the sins listed in verse 16, grumblers complain about their lot in life to the point where they're shaped and formed into being malcontent people. And malcontent people think they can run their life better than God can. And so they follow their own sinful desires and commit all kinds of ungodly deeds and ungodly ways. Do you see the progression here? See the progression. Understand, it's almost always a slow, gradual progression. It doesn't happen overnight or it wouldn't go by unnoticed. Like a frog in a kettle. These ungodly leaders slowly but surely boiled. They slowly but surely sinned and excused it and sinned and excused it and sinned and excused it in small ways at first and yet gradually progressing to more and more into a state of ungodliness. That's how it happens. It's rare that a professing Christian becomes apostate overnight. There are thousands of little compromises along the way. And Lewis writes about this. C.S. Lewis writes about this in the Screwtape Letters as uh, Screwtape is mentoring his, his nephew and how to lead people astray. And his, his nephew is discouraged by the small sins he's seeing in, his, in, his, uh, in the person he's trying to ruin. He wants to see big, blatant rebellion. And so Screwtape tells him, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember... The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Friends, beware the gradual road to hell. See to it that you keep yourselves in the love of God, as we're going to see in the text in this upcoming week. See to it that you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See to it that you continually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow him with all that you are. So we'll look at next, I think that's for the sake of time, that we'll make this the last demand. The, the last demand here we want to look at is believe in and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we would rightly say that this is actually the first and primary and most important demand made upon us in light of Christ's coming judgment and conviction of the ungodly. is to believe in and follow him. You know, part of what's so startling about the ungodly deeds and kinds of speech mentioned in verse 16 and, and in Revelation 21.8 as we looked at earlier is that these are the kinds of sins that we've all committed. Some of us may have even committed these kinds of sins in the last week. Some of them we commit regularly. So for Jude, 
What separates the godly from the ungodly here? Well, it can't be that the ungodly never commit these kinds of sins or never struggle with these kinds of sins. Guys, we need to remember, the gospel is not good news of reward for good people. The gospel is good news of forgiveness for wicked, evil, wretched people. And, 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 and it's for the people that Jude says here have been called and beloved and kept, as he says in verse 1. He's, it's for the people who have been called and beloved and kept by God himself and by Jesus Christ himself. And so that just begs the question, what makes someone beloved and kept and called? What makes someone this? What makes someone identified by these things? It's nothing other than the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's the saving work of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jude tells us that Jesus will come again to convict the ungodly. But the first time he came, he didn't come to judge. He came to be judged so that we might be saved. God was kind and gracious and merciful and loving to offer us a way of salvation from the coming judgment. As Jesus says himself in John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came the first time not to judge, but to save. And he did so by actually being judged for us and in our place to receive the judgment that we deserve because of our ungodliness, because of our ungodly deeds, and because of our words of ungodliness. He died for us and for our sins of grumbling and malcontentment and following our sinful desires and being loudmouthed boasters and flatterers to gain advantage and more. All our sin, all your sin, Christian, was laid upon him and he took it to the cross of Golgotha. And it's there that he received the verdict we deserved. It's there that God executed judgment and convicted the innocent one of all our crimes so that we may go free in the coming judgment when the resurrected Christ will come again in glory accompanied by myriad angels to judge the living and the dead. My friends, either Christ bore your judgment on the cross or you will bear it on the last day. And this is why you must believe no one's sin goes undealt with. No one's sin remains unjudged. It's not a matter of whether God will judge your sin or not. It's just a matter of whether Christ was judged for you or if you'll bear it yourself on the last day. And this is why we must believe in him. This is why we must give our lives to him. This is why we must follow him and hand our lives over to him and be saved. If you don't, the destiny that awaits the ungodly leaders in Jude and all the ungodly will await you too. God has shown us in Jude where the car is headed. And it's kind of him to do so. It's kind of him to give us fair warning in kindness and grace. He shows us where the car is headed so that we know better than to get in. He's shown us the destiny and doom of the ungodly so that we do not follow them, but follow Christ, who is our salvation and our Lord. Let's go to him now in prayer and to his table. Father, we give you thanks for your word. That it gives us clear warning of what awaits the ungodly. And we pray that 
you would help us to beware the gradual road to hell and to continually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow him with all that we are so that we might be saved on the last day. We pray, Father, that for those listening who have not trusted in Christ, that they would believe in Christ, that they would receive his salvation, that they would would, uh, repent and trust in him so that their judgment day took place 2,000 years ago in Golgotha and so that they might be received into eternal fellowship with Jesus forever and ever on the last day. Lord, for all of us, help us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us to keep ourselves in your love forevermore, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.